Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening to us this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive things about us on social media. This is a big way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause what you're doing and go and give us a five-star rating and review. And Christopher, I'm sorry, I'm not going to uh, uh, beg our listeners to give us a five-star review uh, this week. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay, and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you? Doing all right, Kirk. We've had a melty week here, but- Oh, I'm sorry. We're promised some nasty weather here with some 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 winds uh, and some rain changing to snow. I don't know what that means for the, the future. The ambiguous wintry mix. The ambiguous wintry mix. Hopefully That's it's the not Pennsylvania too, curse. Hope, hopefully it's not too slippy, as they say in, in Pennsylvania. <laughs> right. Use the word slippy. <laughs> well, while, while we had snow, Kirk, you know, but our listeners don't, yeah. that uh, we feel pretty good about ourselves as parents because we taught our children to ski you definitely well, win the parenting gold star well we we do what we can <laughs> uh we are blessed to have uh, a small but but perfect ski hill to learn on right here in town it's owned it's municipally owned and it's 15 minutes from my house and last tuesday uh, so nine days before we're recording this we, we brought my our kids we picked them up. Meg was off uh, of work. So we picked them up right after school and shuttled them out. We'd gotten three free passes uh, to go skiing there. And we'd never taken our kids skiing ever. Our kids are 10 and seven. And Kirk, our parents, uh, of course, uh, brought mm. us, taught us to ski far before then. Yeah, they did such a we, good job. Yeah. We were wee lads when we were skiing. Yes, they, they did a wonderful job with that. Uh, but we hadn't done that with our kids and, uh, and, and we did. And, and it went about as well as it possibly could have, by which I mean, our daughter, every single time she fell, she had a meltdown, <laughs> but by the end of the day, she went down the big hill twice. Uh, the big hill being not that big, it's under 200 feet in elevation. Uh, and, but then of course, um, the rest of the night we spent on, on the bunny hill, our seven-year-old son, we weren't sure how well he'd do, you know, he's the one with the neuromuscular disease anyway. Uh, he's got this, he does pretty well, but we just didn't know, like, does he have the leg muscles to, to ski and to steer and all that. And, and by the end of the day, he figured out how to go down the hill. He <laughs> couldn't figure out how to turn or stop. Did, that seem, did it seem to bother him too much though? Not a bit. <laughs> and so he would just sit down. He, he would just sit on his skis. He figured out how to sit on his skis now we tried to build on that, Kirk. We, uh, what's the what's the myth of the people with the wax wings that fly a little too close to the sun? Daedalus and Icarus. Icarus, yes. Icarus, yeah. Yeah, uh, that that was us uh, going back six days later. We uh, <laughs> found out Mondays are our half price days at, at the ski hill, and uh, you know, honestly, the ski season here isn't isn't all that great. It's usually either too warm or too cold. There's, there's not a big Goldilocks zone for skiing. Usually either like the two times we went, it was 40 degrees and everything was melting around us. But I mean, it's also possible in January for it to be like five below and windy, which is not great conditions to teach a a child how to ski. It's only for the hardiest of souls. But uh, yeah, like Icarus, we, we, we were confident, uh, smelling ourselves a little bit. And uh, those are in the words of, I think, DeAndre 
Jordan of, of the Clippers. Uh, we were after a loss. He was like, we were smelling. He th- means we're overconfident. We were a little bit overconfident in our building on that foundation. And uh, Isaac uh, refused to really move on from, <laughs> from his method of just I'm like trying to teach him how to turn. And, and uh, he's just like, eh, he'll, he'll try a little bit, but not, not very hard. And, and Jordan had built a mountain out of a molehill of uh, getting off, getting off the ski lift mm. like that. She, she had getting, done that getting off or on. Well, both mostly okay. getting off. Okay. But uh, we were headed to the big hill cause she quote unquote got bored with the, the, the little, with the bunny hill, mm-hmm. which is understandable. I mean, once you learn the, right. the, the rudiments of skiing, like you, you want to go try, go faster and whatever. Um, but she was just terrified to get on the, the ski lift. Most, mostly, I mean, they could slow down the ski lift for you and make it really creep and easy to sit down, but like she was still afraid to get off. And when you have, um, when you have someone who's kind of prone to anxiety, just it doesn't take a lot of anxiety. Uh, doesn't take a big thing to, to expand into an all encompassing thing right. that re- reduces you to tears. So her night didn't end well, but, uh, I ended up just kind of skiing next to Isaac. I, I used my poles uh, to kind of force him to turn. So instead of him just going straight down and sitting, I was like, okay, we're, we're going to like go next to each other. So he would hold my poles. Can you picture that? Yeah. Yeah. Our skis are parallel. He's right next to me. We hold, he's holding under my poles that, that I'm just holding out for him. And we would just kind of, uh, traverse the hill back and forth and back and forth, learning how to hopefully learning how to like set an edge and, and make those turns. Um, and so we, we went up the big hill three times. Once we did that. And then twice he just went between my legs and that's classic. Yeah. 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 And so he grabbed my, so I held my poles like in front of him yeah. between my legs and, and I kind of taught him how to turn that way. And he just loved the speed. Uh, there's only <laughs> once where it's slightly terrifying where I, uh, my ski went on top of his. And so I like, I, I couldn't turn or slow down at all. Uh, luckily, I mean, it's not a big hill and there, there, there aren't like a lot of trees or anything, but like, I, I, like we were just caught going straight down the hill, his skis under mine. So as I'm like trying unsuccessfully to slow us down or turn, it took us, I don't know, like 60 feet to do that. Um, but all in all, uh, a little bit of Icarus, a little bit of, a little bit of success. So, uh, hopefully this can be, uh, the, the goal is, is for this to be something that they learn and that c- they can enjoy and something we could do for a lifetime, you know, whether it's, yeah. whether it's going to, uh, like a big resort once a year or once every couple of years, but, but that's, that's what we're aiming for. Yeah. I mean, I know you and I have uh, shared that dream at some point, getting our kids to a, to a place where we can kind of meet together at a, at a cool place and do some actual mountain skiing. That yeah. is a gift our, our parents gave to us is there were several mm-hmm. times that we, we really did do some, some big mountain skiing. I, I have really fond memories of, uh, of skiing in uh, New Hampshire. Yeah. Uh, and I was in third we grade when, when we were tackling these. Can you believe that? Size hills. Yeah. yeah. That was third that was grade. Well, like we were ready to, to, yeah. So Christopher, I, uh, I have some hilarious uh, teaching kids how to ski memories because I've, <laughs> gone with uh, my students through our ski club um, uh, over the years where, where I teach in my school district. And um, so last year I took a bunch of seventh and eighth graders and it's, it's just funny what screens have done to kids. <laughs> so, so, I mean, there were some kids that were just physical noodles. I mean, it was like trying to pick up, trying to pick up jello um, when, when, uh, when I, when they fell, and um, I mean, it, it was it was out of like a nineteen, uh, you know. I'm trying to think of what 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 like phys- physical what like, physical comedy yeah. actor it would be mm-hmm. like out of the '60s or '70s as they're like a Harvey Corman skit um, out of the Carol Burnett show, like as they're like just gelatinously quivering in my arms with skis going as I'm trying to pick them up off the hill and set them back up, um, and uh, and um, just. How kids it, it to, uh, for some kids it takes um, an afternoon and evening to learn how to stand up. 
you know, or how to get up after you fall down or how to, all, all that stuff. It's funny. So whatever, whatever discouragement you have, um, your kids are, are so far beyond so many kids that I've taught to ski and neither of your kids tried to kill you. I've twice had kids <laughs> who, <laughs> students who, uh, there, there comes the time when you, as you discovered with Isaac, when you think, think I'm good, I can make it down the hill and you're good in that you can make it down the hill, but, but it's not occurred to you. You don't know what to do when you get to the bottom. Now, <laughs> Isaac being whatever, 40 pounds, he right. can't, you know, force his mass <laughs> times acceleration. He doesn't have much right. mass, right. Uh, but you take like a 10th grader and teach him how to ski. And then oh he my. comes down the hill. I've, I've had twice, I've been knocked over waiting at the bottom for a kid. Oh my. <laughs> and so like, Mr. Haber, Mr. Haber, Mr. Haber, book. <laughs> so you, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're doing great now. And also you're ahead of me because you're batting two for two. I only have, uh, have taken one of my kids out on the slopes and it was Simon last year when he was in third grade uh, that I took. And I took him to Seven Springs, so that was that was bigger. That wasn't kind of yeah. you know the small thing. But it sounds like you have a comparable but, thing uh, where it's like a small yes, yeah, like yeah. almost like a parks department hill that yeah yeah. Though we're skipping that stage next next week, we're going we're going straight to Seven Springs. All all the boys. I'm just daunted by the cost, honestly. Like oh, it's I'm not going to do crazy the expensive the hundreds of dollars to go to the 200 feet. Like why not right. just pay more and take them to the actual hill? <coughs> sure so, yeah i mean yeah that's and that's why we went on monday nights because it was half price so it was actually cheaper than it was the first time when we had three free passes you know because we don't own skis so um, so here's rent. my final thought so, on I, so, so i mean it's funny kirk for for me to rent a set of skis yeah. just to go down the bunny hill you know right. like i didn't need like i i should have just like fashioned some out of you know <laughs> ingredients right. i could find in my house <laughs> so here's my final observation on, on skiing. And then we should move on. I, I, this is evidence that I'm growing old, obvious evidence that I'm growing old. Uh, so with seventh and eighth graders that are just learning how to ski and, uh, you know, within an hour last year of taking them out on the slopes, um, they want to go on the, what's it called? Uh, the, like the, uh, the run that has like black diamond or no, or no, 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 no. That has like a, um, Oh, like the terrain park. Yeah, it's got, I, I, this, oh my gosh, I'm embarrassing myself. It, not just jumps, but like has stuff on it, like railings and, is that called a train park? I would call yeah. that a train park, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's got like, got like, like, it's like almost like a skate park for skis. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, Christopher, a lot of the hills that we went to we on when we were kids, we didn't have that. No. Ah, kind of no. robbed, right? All we had was the hill with moguls, which no one taught yeah. me how to do that. So and and like, a half pipe, no. yeah. Right, yeah. right, a half pipe. So the kids are going on that and, uh, and they're like, Mr. Avery, can we go on this? Let's see. Okay. So I go on it and I was scared. Mm. <laughs> like suddenly now when I take jumps mm. and stuff, I don't ever remember as a kid right. approaching a jump with trepidation, only that sense of elation and freedom and the beauty of that, that, that weightlessness of being airborne, how great that feels as a kid. Uh, it was hard for me uh, last year as a 40 year old, this year as a 41 year old to experience that weightlessness and just let go and experience that as pure joy. Mm. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, 18 that's, anymore. <laughs> that's interesting. What, what I found Kirk, you know, because, because we did all of our skiing, you know, first grade through, you know, our, our senior year. And then we right. took a, a significant break um, and then I, I went once in college and then came back to it when I was almost 30, I think, mm -hmm. um, just, just due to the circumstances, finances, whatever. Um, what I found coming back to it, you know, as, as a teenager, like going, like we would try to find the biggest jumps and, and like see how much air we could get. Yeah. Like that was, that was like, I remember there was this one run that we would do again and again and again, because it had this series of jumps. Yes. Uh, and it was, it was just a blast. And we try to see like who could get the most air. What I, I think I've lost is my balance. <laughs> is that it kind of in my adult life of skiing uh i've tried a few jumps and just couldn't figure out how to keep my weight like i find my weight too far back yeah and so like yep, yep, what yep, happens yep. i go off the jump and like i'm i'm doing that funny awkward like slow yes. motion thing where your arms are are what am i doing with my arms windmilling my arms like yes. trying to regain balance <laughs> yeah and like I, I just couldn't figure it out and i didn't have the 
I didn't have the, I, I think that, yeah, there's fear that creeps in. Uh, and that started creeping in probably in high school as well as like, I didn't want to get in trouble, like during basketball season, like yeah. by getting injured for skiing. But anyway, right, cause we technically always, it shouldn't have been skiing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so there are several humiliating ways as an adult to do tricks and do a jump. There's the windmilling with the arms, which then that's humiliating, right? <laughs> but then there's also the defensive crouch and taking it cautiously. So like, I, like I, I try, try hard to do it with panache, do it cool, you know, not, not windmilling with my limbs and stuff, but, but you're right. Like, um, as we're aging, Christopher, fast stuff is just moving faster. Mm. <laughs> Stimuli just is like coming at us faster. Like the brain's ability to process it, assimilate it and react to it. And I think Why I might be able to regain game. I think I might be able to regain it, but I don't have the will to do that. Like I don't, you know, it's, it's, I, I yeah. Life is a young man's game. It just is. So all we have left to offer is wisdom and experience. Mm. Speaking of wisdom and experience, we should look at the disciples, Christopher. Today's gospel lesson comes from John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? you will seek greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we are, Kirk. We're in the second Sunday of Epiphany. Yes, we are. The <laughs> season of man, the manifestation of Jesus Christ, not just as a great prophet, but as a savior, and not just as a savior of uh, Israel, but a savior for the nations. And since Christmas, we've been walking through this life of Jesus. This is the this first half of, of the Christian calendar. We walk with Jesus. And we've been, um, the reason we do this, is we think that walking through uh, with him, through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, we, we believe this helps us draw near to him. And, and two weeks ago, we saw the wise men come from the east to worship Jesus. They came bearing gifts. Last week, we saw the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus began his public ministry by identifying with humanity, by taking on a baptism of repentance, even though he was without sin. And so you may remember, listener, that the next thing that happens to Jesus is, you know, in, in Mark, we've talked about Mark a lot since we're in year B, and we're going to have a lot of Mark, um, how he was immediately cast out into the wilderness uh, to be tempted by, by the devil for, uh, for 40 days. But in the liturgical calendar, we skip over that reading since that's always the reading for the first Sunday of Lent because there's a corresponding between, there's a reason that Lent is 40 days and it corresponds to Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. And so we're back in John and, and we, we see this progression of Jesus being revealed to the nations uh, through the wise, uh, the coming of the wise men. But here he begins his his ministry, person by person, by calling his first disciples. Um, and there's there's a richness to this first chapter of John. John was intentional. We talked about earlier in earlier episodes. He was intentional in echoing Genesis one, how in 
you know, Genesis one, God says, uh, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so we see in the first chapter following, uh, you know, in this first week of ministry from the, uh, from the baptism of Christ, we see a sequence of days. We see in verse 29, it says the next day. In verse 35, it says the next day. In verse 43, the next day. And then in John chapter 2, verse 1, we see John say on the third day. And if we count these up, we have a week. In Genesis, we see God create the heavens and the earth in six days and rest on the seventh. And here in John, we see almost this recreation. These, these days add up to a week represents renting, representing God's recreation through Jesus, that his first week of public ministry climaxes in the first of the seven signs of John in which he turns water to wine at the wedding at Cana. And so we see him, uh, we actually come in the middle of him calling his disciples here. He's already called uh, Peter and Andrew. Who am I missing? Is he called others? Sure, Peter and Andrew. Okay, uh, and and we see him uh, call Philip, and uh, Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, uh, "Listen, we found him. We found the ones that the scriptures are talking about." And the reply from Nathaniel is is skeptical. He says, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Now, some of this was pure like geographical bias, like really Nazareth and Galilee, like. Like it, it wasn't a prosperous or important place, but uh, it's also like lacks importance in the prophetic writings, right? That like yeah, the, the, yeah. the, this Davidic savior is to come out of Bethlehem, not out of, not out of Nazareth. Um, and Philip's response to him is, is really neat. He says, come and see. Yeah. Which is a kind of something that, that uh, we, in the church do sometimes like we may make a, an intellectual defense of Christianity or historic defense of Christianity, but sometimes uh, the best thing we could say to somebody is to come and see, come and see Jesus through our divine service on a Sunday morning, come and see, come and hear the scriptures proclaim, come and experience word and sacrament. Like there's something that happens in liturgical and sacramental worship that, that can't be described. And, and I think that's a, a powerful part of being a liturgical people. And then, so Nathaniel's skeptic, but he comes anyway because of Philip and his testimony. And uh, Jesus sees Nathaniel. And this is something that I never understood in the past where uh, Jesus is like, aha, here's, here's an Israelite where there's, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel's like, uh, how do you know me? And Jesus is like, oh, like he says this really cryptic thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I saw you under the fig tree and this blows Nathaniel's mind. What? You are the son of God. Like suddenly he believes because of this. And like, I used to think this was like a, a particularly funny part of scripture. Yeah. But, yeah. Like, basically, I didn't understand what was happening is that like Jesus is conveying to him um that he saw in his interaction, like something that he could have never possibly seen. Like this is like only somebody with magical or the powers of God could have witnessed this thing that Nathaniel did under the fig tree, which testifies to the fact that he is a man in whom there is no deceit. That's what we're seeing. Now, uh, Augustine, I am told, um, also uh, has sees the significance in this fig tree. Uh, th there's a... Uh, symbolic significance here and that represents like being under sin and him uh, and, and there we see this parallel again to Genesis um, and, and there's all sorts of amazing things that John is doing in a literary sense here going back to, to Genesis and, um, and uh, there's a lot to be said there um, are you saying like um, under the fig tree under sin yeah. Um, okay. The fruit of the tree representing uh, sinful. Okay. Sinful inheritance in Adam. Yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and John John was one to think not just narratively but theologically as well. Indeed. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Kirk, Kirk, what do you see here in John one in the calling of the disciples? Uh, so at the very end of it, um, uh, verse fifty one. 
Uh, well, back to verse 50, uh, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you you do you believe you will see greater things than these. Uh, so that might be um, casting forward uh, prophetically to the, um, to the transfiguration. Um, though, interestingly, now that I say that. Right. Philip was uh, there. Philip for, wasn't there. Was there for so that. that's Peter, yeah. James, and John. Uh, but then, yeah. okay, so that's not what I was going to say. But what I was going to say <laughs> no, is. No, but that, that's what I was wondering. And like, I, I actually didn't read up, read up on that. So that's perhaps yeah, something no, I should I'm have curious. looked up. I'm curious yeah. about that. But verse 51 um, uh, is, uh, to me, uh, harkens back quite obviously to Genesis 28, um, where you have at Bethel, um, Jacob falls asleep and has, uh, has the dream, the proverbial Jacob's ladder, right? Where he sees uh, angels ascending and descending. And uh, I think a lot of Christopher, probably the teaching uh, that American Christians grow up with about Jacob's ladder and the meaning of that dream is probably twisted by, by the campfire song, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. Right. right. Um, which is not what... Uh, what Jacob sees in the dream, he does not see any human climbing Jacob's ladder, right? But angels ascending and descending. And it also, um, it twists and obscures uh, the, the singer from um, what is the prophetic meaning of Jacob's ladder? Um, that is what, is, what is the bridge that connects heaven and earth that reconciles that divide? And, uh, and we see the answer here, right? The incarnation. Uh, I say to you, you will see heaven, heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, I don't want to make too much of this um, because uh, I don't want, I don't know um, the preposition on um, in Aramaic, what, what John was getting at, but, but there, it's possible that there could be the a, a kind of a double pun there. Um, as the angels descended and descended on the steps on, on the Jacob's ladder, right? Um, the son of man is the, uh, the agent of reconciliation between heaven and earth. Right. Um, and so, uh, um, this is, this is clarifying in some ways what in Genesis you have obscurely cryptically prophesied. Um, so that's lovely. I also do, I, I do love, uh, in these early moments of Jesus ministry in John, you do have, uh, more divine agency. You do see kind of um, miraculous things or, or, or breaking forth of Jesus' divine nature. For example, like just saying, I saw you under the fig tree. I love that. And I love the humanness of uh, the response. <laughs> like, whoa, I will follow you anywhere. Um, and then and then Jesus laughing at that. And like, you think that's great? All of it, all of it <laughs> strikes me as, as, as fun, as human, um, as as authentic, um, and it, it I, I love that it um, it brings us the reader into into the life of Jesus and the disciples. It welcomes us in as we picture that. Um, when you read other uh, sacred texts from other religious traditions, um, there is a certain elevated pomposity. Um, uh, 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 mm. Like if you, the Bhagavad Gita is, is high, <laughs> um, high Hindi poetry and um, you don't, you don't really have kind of playful inter interaction like this. Um, you don't see playful interaction in this, like this in the Quran. Um, and so to me, this has, this has the ring of truth. And it, um, and like I said, it, it invites us in. So, uh, and and finally, this is a uh, proper at the beginning for the second Sunday of Epiphany, Christopher, because um, uh, Jesus um, begins his ministry by inviting the disciples into something greater um, in their lives. And so, I mean, this should be mirrored in our lives, right? Um, as we read this, we should as well feel called into something greater and something elevated. Um, we too, if we follow him, will see see things greater than than this. So, yeah, could could I tack on just a, a little something like tack uh, on? I I'm recalling now that in fact, yeah, like that, like this isn't a, a reference to the transfiguration, but is in fact a reference to like the incarnation of God. Like, 
you, Kirk, you are absolutely correct in saying the the error of of the song "We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder" is this like that's not what happened. We like <laughs> nobody climbed Jacob's ladder. That that in Jacob's ladder, God descended. You know, right? Um, and that's what we see here is is God uh, in Christ. God descended to us. Um, and uh, also, I mean, there's another parallel to Jacob here, in that uh, in that Jacob. Uh, you know, in the, the Jesus is the new and better Jacob. You know, we as we could say that about everything in the Old yes. Testament, he's the new and better Moses. That that Jacob was uh, wrestled with God and, and was struck by God, um, and and walked to the limp. Where, um, uh, you know, we wrestle with God, and Christ is struck. Um, you know, on mm. our behalf, and, and so so there's that as well. I was looking at our, our lesson from from First Corinthians, and it is so rich. So the lesson this Sunday is First Corinthians six verses nine through twenty, which is kind of an interesting way of breaking that up. Uh, it's usually broken up. Uh, this pericope is usually twelve and onward, um, and uh, 11, verses nine through eleven are are put with the the passage before it, but. There's so much here that I, I I just wanted to get into there, there's so many we're, we're gonna spend some time in first Corinthians over the next several weeks. I don't know if you've looked ahead, Kirk. Mm-hmm. Um, that's gonna yeah. be our uh, second lesson um, in first Corinthians for the next several weeks. and and Paul, what was going on in Corinth, there, there are a lot of parallels between the city of Corinth and and our multicultural um, milieu of today including our Gnostic tendencies. So the Greek philosophy taught that the body is nothing but a trap for the soul. And in America today, uh, it's arguable that many of us believe this, that the body, uh, you know, even though we Christians uh, in our creeds, we talk about the resurrection of the body or the resurrection of the flesh, that that in fact many Christians just see the body as this unimportant thing that will rot away and die, and someday our soul we get to be ghosts someday, and and our soul will fly away to heaven. I mean, there's a hymn called "All Fly Away." Right. <laughs> the sense um, where in fact this like this earth that God created, He created it and He called it good. And though um, sin entered the world, and with sin came death, the world is still good. Like this, like the, the fundamental like goodness of the world, even as it's as as like entropy is a thing, um, this is God's creation. And uh, what happens when you don't think the body matters? Uh, what happens is you there's two different ways to go there. And and so some and this happened in Greece, and that happens today. You uh, in, in Greece, we saw some people say the body's not important, therefore. Uh, we should not in- indulge in bodily pleasures. And so there's like a sort of aestheticism uh, that, that accompanies that belief. Others say, because the body doesn't matter, it's only our souls. And these are just, our bodies are just kind of traps for our souls. Um, that that it doesn't matter what we do with our body. Um, eat, drink, be merry. Uh, uh, that that um, sexual... Uh, what we do sexually doesn't matter uh, because it's it's detached from our, what's really important is the soul. And, and, and as Christians, we don't believe that. And, and so Paul is writing to this church in Corinth uh, and he's doing something really interesting in this uh, in verses nine through 11, we see this, this thing that I think, 
people who preach grace and have heard the good news of justification by faith probably struggle to reconcile with, with kind of this newfound freedom in Christ. And that's okay. The reality is if you truly get um, what, what it means to be justified by faith, then you're going to ask, like, does it matter what we do? That's a logical question. That's why Paul mm-hmm. has to address that in, in, in almost each of his letters. He has to say, yes, it actually does matter what you do. Yes, we have freedom in Christ, um, but freedom in Christ, uh, and we'll get to that in verse 12 with this maximum that apparently they have, that all things are lawful for me, that Paul has to answer. So Paul opens this passage by saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so sinners uh, may ask, like, well, uh, what hope is there for me if um, if this list of sins, like if, if I've been greedy, if I stole, if I desire to steal? Um, does this mean that I won't inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, uh, well, no, because verse 11 says, and such were some of you, yeah. but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And what Paul is teaching here um, in the tense that he's using um, is he's saying these things, this is who you were. You were a thief. You were, you were a sinner. But in Christ, through union with Christ, you've been washed and sanctified and justified. And therefore, these sins, which are in your past and which you may struggle with to this day, they don't define you. And in fact, God has separated that sin from you. And and, and you are not a thief. You're not a drunkard. You're not a reviler. You're not a swindler. Um, but um, so that, that doesn't mean that, like, it doesn't matter what we do because Jesus will forgive us. Like, that's that is not at all. Um, this is like descriptive, like um, those that are in Christ that have union with him because of our, our washing and our sanctification and justification, like these things like no longer reign in our mortal bodies. So we see both indicatives and imperatives here. We see both uh, Paul describing the Christian life uh, and also calling us at the end to glorify God with their body. He says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price to so glorify God with your body because what you do with your body matters. And Kirk, I will leave time for you to talk. I just have a few more minutes here that, that I want to kind of um, uh, opine here. So in, <laughs> opine in, verses, away, sir. in verses 12 and following, he talks a little bit about Christian freedom and how they're misunderstanding that, how he's trying to like get them like, expel from their minds this Jewish legalism that, that, that may have kind of come with Christian teaching. And so like people are saying, well, all things are lawful for me. Um, th- that quote there um, is, is he's quoting them. They must've had some correspondence coming to him saying, well, we get to do whatever we want. Right. And Paul's like, yeah, but, but if, even if that were true, these things don't help you. They don't draw you near um, nearer to God. Um, and, and, this this weird verse that says food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food they're using this they're they're like saying like my sex parts are meant for sex therefore i should be able to indulge in those feelings when i want to and he's saying no 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 like you don't understand what's happening here and he's talking specifically about pagan rituals and prostitutes that are tied to these um pagan temples um and he's saying like participating in that like you are, you belong to Christ. Like uh, because you are washed and, and are, are set free in Christ, you have this new citizenship in this new kingdom and you belong to him. And you can't go back to this old life where you were um, mixed with this pagan body and, and doing these um, sexual acts. You're fornicating that, that in fact, that there is a Christian sexual ethic, which, um, uh, again, there, there are like polarities here that are, are harmful, um, that there's libertinism, which is not helpful because that, that is fornication, that sex belongs between marriage, between a man and a woman. But on the other side, uh, we have purity culture, which has been incredibly unhelpful to, to the church. And, 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 um, Kirk, I wonder 
when when you kind of respond to this text in this passage and this theology of of sex in the body if if you have thoughts on this because um i know many people who have been harmed by purity culture and what i mean by that is is um uh many people raised in the church um their firm belief that that because sex is reserved for marriage um they get married so they can have sex right. so like um they've been waiting so long for this thing that like that um and and this kind of in some ways is is we, we had christina hitchcock on the podcast a few weeks ago and she talked about uh, you know people at age 22 feeling like old maids because they hadn't gotten married yet mm -hmm. because college is the only time that you're actually, you know, for some reason they're convinced this is when you find like a Christian husband. And so, uh, the other thing is like, it's hard to flip that switch is, is, is people who've been told, um, forever, um, sex is bad. Sex is bad. Sex is bad because you're not married when they get married. It's hard to flip that switch. So, um, uh, I, I feel like I've said far too much, Kirk. Uh, could you respond to, on just like a, a, a healthy um, sexual ethic for Christians and, yeah. and the body? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I will. I just want to say there's, there's something also interesting that's going on. And so this isn't necessarily disagreeing with you, but just pointing out there um, amongst the youth because of it has, it has a bit to do with um, screens and uh, the atomization um, of our the, the way our, we interact less socially. Um, uh, this uh, generation, I, I don't know what you want to say, under 30, under 25, under 20, is less sexually active than any generation since such things have been tracked. Um, and so there's actually a modern kind of sexless countervailing trend um, where we're, and this too is Gnostic, where, yes. where young, yes. the young are just kind of recoiling from human contact yes. um, out of fear. Um, uh, I, I, you probably read about this. Uh, there's, there's an odd um, fear of dating, just the, 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 the hard hurdle of asking someone out um, and the difficulty of interacting with all of that. And, and that too is Gnostic, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's something beautifully lovely human, um, the nervous dance, um, uh, of the unsure boy and the blushing girl. And um, there, there's something sexless and post-Christian about avoiding all of that. God made that. <laughs> and, mm. um, and, 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 and having to go through that to get to the, the goodness of human relationship on the other side is worthwhile. And um, so, and, and, but I know that is not what, we, that is not what we intended on talking about, but that is a real trend and it's happening and it's strange. Well, really what I want to talk about is, is just I'll like get, I'll our, get to what you want to talk our about. Our contemporary <laughs> Gnostic yes. tendencies, which yeah. you are touching on. So yeah. I, I think you're <laughs> yeah. right on topic. And that too is Gnostic, but um, yeah, so you, you're right. There are these two poles um, that, that Christians that we should be catechizing and teaching and preaching people um, to kind of navigate between, and the one is just sheer hedonism, and the other is um, uh, a, a purity culture that, okay. that that creates yeah. shame and lies and secrecy. So you and I probably grew up. We grew up with people who lied to their parents um, mm. and continued to wear purity rings and stuff mm. um, when it wasn't real anymore. And that's that's not Christian, right? We want to we want people to be able to have honest conversations, and then we want there to be grace and renewal for when there's sin. And uh, there, I think purity culture did create um, people who felt that they were tainted. So it's the point of holiness. Mm, yes. yeah. um, and that's not what holiness is. Holiness isn't a taint. And that's a, that's a failure of teaching on the church and mm -hmm. on parents' part of what um, God's grace is and what baptism is. And I mean, we just read, Christopher, you just read, you are washed, you are sanctified. Mm -hmm. uh, like you what are not you tainted do. because you you in, right. indulge one time in premarital sex. Like that doesn't. Yeah. It's not something you carry with you forever. Yeah. That's what not you do you. can't undo the name that that yeah. the the creator of the stars has given you when when he adopted you as child. So yeah, um, that's that's a misunderstanding and a failure to to comprehend what grace is and what God's love is. Mm. Um, but I also do want to speak of the church as a safe harbor, um, particularly for women and children. And uh, it was in, in Rome uh, for, for kind of a godless hedonistic culture, and which Corinth certainly was uh, an unsafe place for women and children. And I think we're starting to, to see this now with um, uh, kind of the uh, um, 
as we become increasingly aware of just how much sexual assault there is, um, what percentage of young women undergo, um, the, the church should be a, a place where it's safe for, for women because um, this is not how we live. We live lives of holiness. Um, but again, that's not what you wanted to talk about as well. Um, you and I were talking about earlier today uh, just how um, this Gnostic notion that, uh, that our minds and our bodies are disconnected, and so it doesn't matter what you do with your, bo your body, um, uh, how that has ripple effects um, that are damaging. Uh, and Christopher, I was noticing, I had never perhaps noticed this before in, um, in verse, verses 12 through 14, uh, and, and I'm looking here particularly at verse 13, for food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Uh, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And I had never thought of Holy Communion before until I read that. But you and I were talking about um, earlier today, uh, Christianity as an embodied religion, as an incarnate religion, because the word became flesh, divine and human nature are forever intermingled. Um, and uh, um, how can, just like humanity could not be the same once God became man, just like baptism couldn't be the same once Jesus was baptized. Um, as I read this, how can we be the same once we feed upon Christ? Um, I read that now, the, uh, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Um, and I think upon how we, um, how we feed upon our Lord and how can we be the same thereafter? And we are, we are, we are I mean, the word Holy Communion, commune, right? To, to dwell with, <laughs> to be intertwined with. Um, how can we be the same thereafter? We are united with our Lord and united with our brethren. Um, and uh, think of um, your closest group of friends um, think of your your spouse or your best friend. Um, how you how you how we implicitly understand that we owe them something, um, and we wouldn't damage their lives. Um, be out out of love. Uh, the premise, Christopher, behind the good place, uh, which we talked about in a previous episode, uh, the rhetorical premise was, "What do we owe each other?" Remember that? What do we owe each other? And that that question underlay everything they did. Um, and that question kind of underlays this, what do we owe each other? And the, the modern lie, the lie of modernism is individual autonomy. And Father Harrison talked about that last week, right? Um, that what, like I can do whatever I want because I'm captain of my own ship. I am the sovereign in my life. And it's not true, right? Um, what we do has knock-on effects on, on, on the people we love but as our family, our new family is the church, it has knock-on effects on the church. Um, and if we create sinful grooves in our own soul, it will corrode, it invariably corrodes the church as well. Um, and, and we see this on a massive scale, of course, with the sexual abuse scandals. When you had people that allowed um, uh, sinful grooves in their own soul who are in leadership positions, who then, you, uh, think of the knock-on effects of that, that uh, it poisons whole parishes, whole dioceses, whole nations. Um, and so, yeah, it's not, the Gnostic lie is not true, that mm. you may do what you wish with your body <laughs> and your soul can continue to whistle along merrily on the path to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Just because, uh, you know, you have been washed and, and your sins have been forgiven doesn't mean that there aren't um, an impact uh, in, in what you do. Like what you do matters. Yeah. And uh, I know this is not we we uh, we have one final brief fun thing that we want to talk about. Um, but you and I both read an article today um, that noticed uh, the corrosive effect I'm using that word too much. I need to not use it. <laughs> you need to find a different word uh, that, that noticed the denuding of the Christian body, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, the church, um, as we kind of continue to limp along, to scuffle along as a virtual body. 
Um, it's just hard because we are an embodied religion, because God became man, and because what we do together, we come together to hear the word together, to pray together, and perhaps most importantly, to feed on him together. Uh, the, um, the, the author of this article, Christopher, um, said you, you can't do that through a screen um, mm-hmm. in the same way that you can't go to a pub and have a drink with friends through a screen, right? All these Zoom happy hours, they're, they're second best, right? They, they cannot possibly recreate the, um, the, the fraternity of, of having a drink together at a, at a pub or a, or a child's birthday party. Like how, how pale, how shadow an imitation is a child's birthday party over Zoom, right? To just the, the, the hurly-burly of children running into together and scampering through rooms and singing off-key happy birthday and the blowing out of candles. That is an embodied experience, right? The eating of the same cake, it's all an embodied experience. And we are limping, <laughs> limping along um, when we cannot be together because we are embodied creatures, so. Speaking of embodied creatures, what if we, like our Lord, had a body that was, uh, what am I? <laughs> Christopher, I'm batting over two in transitions. What if we had a body that was eternal as well, mm. like Wonder Woman? Mm. <laughs> Wonder Woman 1984 uh, is a movie that was released by Warner Brothers in theaters, though I don't know who anybody who's seen it in theaters. Um, More importantly, perhaps it was released on HBO Max um, over Christmas break. Christopher, this will be an entertaining few minutes here. Uh, And it has to be a few minutes because I have a heart out here in 10 minutes. Um, But you and I uh, disagreed uh, significantly over Wonder Woman 1984. And... uh, I would like to talk about why. Christopher, you disliked Wonder Woman 1984. Um, why? I think it's, it's mostly because I recently watched the first one. And although I wasn't overwhelmed with the first one, you know, we had this, you know, it was just another superhero movie that was, that was really overrated because it was a lady superhero. And so like people got a little bit too excited about it. But what I found is, is that the, the, the first Wonder Woman movie has held up really well. And that like the chemistry between uh, Wonder Woman and, and, and Chris Pine is really good. So I've talked uh, in the past about how I can, I can live with imperfect movies, Kirk. I don't want to nitpick. Like I'm not here to <laughs> criticize, like to, to pick nits, okay? Like I, I love a number of imperfect movies, but the problem is as, as like flaws in a movie like add up, like our brains reject the thing. I, I, I've explained this before about like CGI, like when you have, same thing with plot holes. Like when you have, when you have the slow bombers and the, uh, in, in with the gravity bombs and in Last Jedi, you're like, okay. I That's my big hang this. up, the gravity bombs. <laughs> like you can yeah. live with that, but it's like by the time you're on that stupid casino planet and their escape plan was that they like, was like parking on illegally on the beach and like, you're like that's it. I give up on this movie. It's 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 this subconscious thing. So, um, so I ask you like, what was this movie about? Okay, well, I want to think back to what the first movie is about. What we loved about the first movie. So Diana and Steve Trevor, um, that stuff is secondary, but it's really good. The chemistry, like as great as their chemistry is, it's secondary, um, but it does point to what it's about. So this throughout the movie, um, Steve doesn't know who she is, and frankly, neither do we, the viewer. She's She's naive and, and, and he tries to protect her and, and teach her about the world of men. And he's jaded and cynical and, and she's overly naive, but he also doesn't understand how powerful she is. And so 
his first sacrifice is taking her to the continent in the first place. Um, Cause he doesn't realize again that he's with a, with a super human, you know, like he's like, he, when she puts the lasso of truth on him uh, or he actually puts it on himself. He's like, this is a terrible idea. We're probably going to die. And uh, at one point as, as she's being led by him, she's like, no, 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 no. I've got to do something about this. He's like, no, there's nothing we can do. And that's where we have this great scene where in no man's land, she gets up out of the trench and she just decides to go and do this thing. She goes over the top and she sees and Steve sees that she's taking all the fire and they follow her. They cross enemy lines, liberate the village. She learns to dance. It's beautiful. Right, Kirk. I need to rewatch it again. I, uh, I remember enjoying it. Okay. I, I Watch think it I again. It is held more. up really well. Okay. Then, then we go back to the darkness of humanity, to Nazis and chemicals and, and of the village destroyed by chemical warfare. And Diana thinks that it's Ares that who, who, who did this only to find out um, that by killing this German guy that the war doesn't stop. Um, and then there's this stupid CGI fight with Ares slash Sir Patrick Morgan, which although it's visually stupid, it actually works in some really important ways. Although she's all powerful, she's internally conflicted about whether or not humanity's worth saving, right? And it isn't until she realizes she sees the plane explode and realizes what Steve Trevor has done, like that he was willing to sacrifice himself for humanity. Um, oh, that's right. I remember that now. And I was a then, little offended by that internal conflict. Then she like, I was like, kicks, well, forget you if you don't think we're uh, worthwhile. Then she kicks butt. And it's interesting that Patty Jenkins said she didn't actually want the CGI fight, that she, um, but Warner Brothers forced that on her, that she wanted this talky kind of ending, which is what she wanted for this one too. She wanted to end not with a fight, but with a with like a talk of peace. So what's Wonder Woman 84 about? It's a morality tale about the monkey's paw, right? That you can't no. always get what you want. Unfortunately, uh, what we see is the monkey's paw being her losing her powers, right, Kirk? And Steve convincing yeah, yeah. her that the world needs Wonder Woman. And so he's like, you got to let me go because the world needs you. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Kirk, like, this elides the fact that Steve is actually inhabiting the body of a living yeah. human being. Yep. That's the monkey's paw that she stole a life from another yep. person that she could bring back Steve. Which, not that she loses her powers. That's, but that's not cheaply done. She pays a it price for this that. bloated mess of a movie with this creepy, unnecessary bringing yeah, back. You, can't, you cannot use that as evidence against the movie because that ends up being a very poignant uh, decision that she has to make. In some ways, the climax of the movie. They could have done that uh, without him inhabiting the body. Where did this guy go for days? Anyway, no, tell me he was why there. this is a beautiful movie. He was there. <laughs> he was watching it all. Like so, so when when they had uh, when they fornicated, he just kind of helplessly watched from like uh, he was like trapped in his own body with while Steve. No was movie can it. survive that kind of scrutiny. No, okay. <laughs> no, she no, she got the paw. She got the wish. Like we under we as a viewer, we give up the logic of the wish. Like anytime there's a lamp and you get wishes or a monkey's paw, you get a wish. Uh, she got her wish. She got Steve Trevor back. Um, and, uh, and, uh, right. The, but by the, the, the thing they is find a, they fully fueled plane at the, at the museum. Um, and a world war one pilot is able to navigate that world, that jet fighter jet, which is at a museum. Listen, and somehow is like, your, this your brain is shuts every off and scene like, in Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones finds a plane in every scene. Okay. Nothing can withstand Not this a kind decommissioned of plane. Nothing can okay. withstand all right, all right. that criticism. Tell, tell me, tell me why this is a good every movie. plane has fuel in every movie that every pilot runs across, and of course he can fly it. This was not at a field. This not, was at a museum. This is a plane. That is a not a criticism. That is not serious. Okay. <laughs> what it's about is this: <laughs> life does not contain solutions. Light, we are decaying, dying bodies, and life is trade-offs. And we live mostly in denial um, of the fact that we have to make trade-offs. And the great poignant moment is uh, an immortal being who has fallen in love, Diana Prince, who has fallen in love with a mortal, realizing that um, part of the poignant, terrible beauty of life is its frailty and um, and realizing that she has to let Steve Trevor go. And love is still worthwhile, even though it's fleeting. Um, and she lets him go. Uh, I mean, all of the characters that we care about in this movie have to make trade-offs. And the trade-offs have costs. 
and making, making uh, ultimately right decisions in the balance are painful. And sometimes we have to sacrifice uh, um, love, time spent with others. Um, it's, it's most, most movies uh, don't force characters to make, make those kinds of decisions. Most movies have our protagonists find a solution. And what I loved was the honesty of this, is that life rarely involves solutions. Um, so uh, that's very briefly what I, what, I, what I found super poignant about this. Um, you're right, there, uh, the, the final scene with Max Lord has not sat well with me at the end where he's kind of hovering over this stream of what, photons? Um, uh... Would that enable him to touch at a distance? Right, this whole philosophical notion of there is no action at a distance. Like the only action at a distance that we really acknowledge is gravity. We don't actually understand how that works. Um, <laughs> so, and it's not really action at a distance because actually mass bends space time in, in some way. So it's not even at a distance. But anyhow, this allows action at a distance, which kind of offends, not offends me, but it's, it's, a, it's a dumb idea. So that's, that's okay. I mean, villains throughout comic books, um, engage in nefarious uh, actions through dumb ideas. <laughs> um, so you're right, uh, the, I, I, I have uh, succumbed to your criticisms about the stupidity of kind of the final, the final face-off. Um, but all of the, the middle, uh, the Diana Prince and the Steve Trevor encounter um, to me was really human. It was, it was fun, it was funny. Um, Christopher, the, the encounter with modern art was funny um, where, uh, he encounters a modern sculpture and he's like, what is that? And she's like, well, it's art. And he's like, okay. And then he looks at a, <laughs> at a trash can and she's like, oh, that's just a trash can. And he's like, okay. <laughs> that was funny. There was a bunch of, um, the engagement with 80s uh, fashion where he has this mini fashion show and she uh, pretends because she's living in the 80s to think it's all looks awesome. And of course it's like man scarves and, and the big splashy 80s patterns and Fanny packs. Fanny packs. Fanny packs are funny. It's funny. It had fun. And uh, I feel like there was a lot of cultural groupthink that just pivoted and a lot of kind of smart movie critics um, just decided that they were going to just kind of trash it. And there's a lot of stuff that deserves criticism. I wish that comic book movies spent some time, had some people like you, Christopher, that they allowed to sick on the script and just demand some internal consistency. I think that would be valuable. And, uh, and then it would allow us, like you said, to not have our subconscious compile, um, have to deal with this growing list of stupid stuff um, and have to shove it off to the side so that the poignancy could roar forth. I thought the action scenes, uh, Chris Pine is legitimately a, a fun action hero. Um, and it let him have some great action sequences, which is really cool alongside a superhero. So he's human, right? Steve Trevor is yeah, human. Yeah. Um, and it was really neat also as well, Christopher, she, her powers begin to decay, right? Mm -hmm. And so she has to kind of deal with that. And so it's not, she's not a Mary Sue. I mean, this is kind of the criticism that we've been leveling at a lot of, uh, uh, at Ray, um, at, uh, at Captain Marvel. That was, uh, there's no Mary Sue in this movie. Um, she's got to no, get it no. done with declining superhero superpowers. And that's kind of become something that's increasingly obnoxious, right? Especially with female superheroes. So no, not here. But I mean, so one thing you may not know is that that this movie was written and directed by Patty Jenkins. Yeah, she, did yeah, not, yeah. she did not write the first one. Um, and so she got a little bit more carte blanche on this project, of course, there's always the studio saying, do this, do that. But like right. Warner wanted her to, there were, there were essentially two openings to this movie. There was yeah. the, the long kind of boring, stupid one of the like Themyscirian Olympics. And then also like her at the mall and they wanted her to cut one of those. And she's like, no, I want both. Um, oh, that's too bad. I'll tell you what though. I mean, my four-year-old daughter loved the, uh, loved the uh, Amazonian Olympics. She thought that was great. <laughs> but they tried to make a lesson out of it and what kirk what was the lesson there what was the moral don't cut corners i i had trouble linking that to <laughs> right exactly <laughs> like do things the right way okay i get that but what how did that apply uh, was she cutting corners by bringing steve trevor back when in the end it was never going to work like he's dead 
Mike, you got to make your, I don't know. I don't know. They, they need to connect that a little bit more for the viewer. Cause it does. Yeah. I, well, not... I don't even think I'm drawing the right, I'm drawing the right parallel, but I got to go. So we yep. should let's end in prayer. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose son, our savior, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Grant that your people illumined by your word and sacraments may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week, Christopher. Christopher.